I was tired of having those same stories, like be the reason to be a certain way in life. I wanted freedom. I wanted no no more secrets in my life. No more like uh, easy conversations. No more like trying to fix myself, right? That's what I wanted. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and any and all abuse. Today, I'm joined by Kalpashri Gupta. Kalpa is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. In the past, Kalpa sometimes used achievements to avoid dealing with childhood or workplace trauma by owning her own story, focusing on her healing work, and being open about her experiences. She is changing people's lives and the way that we do business. Kalpa is the CEO and founder of Connext Group, a consulting and coaching company helping clients create trauma-informed workplaces for tomorrow. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Trauma, abuse, sexual assault, child abuse incest, religion, spirituality, suicidal ideation, and brief mention of struggles with infertility. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue. I'd like to start with, are you okay? I am more than okay. I'm feeling joyant and blessed today. Nice. And what is a compliment that you have received and that you've never forgotten? I received a lot of compliments that I, my eyes are very soulful and beautiful, and I, I tend to believe that, and I remind myself of that every day. And what is your favorite color or color combination, and it, what do you associate with it? Yeah, it's red and purple, both. And I associate, um, I had done this assessment a while ago, right? How you fascinate by Sally Hoxett and Red is uh, red is a power, you know, color of power, and I so personally associate. I think it just brings out the best, and red looks great on everybody. Mm. Um, and um, purple, which is again uh, prestige, uh, and 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 both of those color for me, and and, and more than prestige, I think it has that regal mystique, uh, a certain kind of quality about purple that I feel really drawn to. So both both are my favorite colors. They are both very intense, like strong, powerful, passionate, royal colors. It's true. For a long time, I always, um, I used to wear red in India quite a bit sometimes, right? But I would always, in corporate life, I I put myself mostly in blue and black and shades of gray. And how that changes your mood and how you feel about yourself, I can't even tell you, right? So now, mostly see me in different shades of red again. Nice. I like that. Yeah. And uh, if I had to summon you in a ritual, what five things would I need to place as offerings at each point of the pentacle on the floor? Yeah, you know, this question is so interesting. And I came down to some of my values and what, what I want amplified in my life, right? So it's going to be some form of knowledge, like learning. So mm-hmm. a book or what I write in my journals, right? Um, 
it's got to be some form of music that fuels my soul. So maybe there's some music playing on. Um, number three, it's something that, that and two, two of the items are um, how we can show compassion in the world. One is like mm-hmm. through money and the other is through prayers. Right? Mm-hmm. And that, that was four, right? And then the fifth one is uh, food that nourishes. So for me, food can be either fruit or I love my son, loves my husband's homemade ghee. And ghee is such a purifier in Indian culture, like from a ritual. So when you talk about ritual, I think those are the five things that came to me. It's become a staple in my household as well. And uh, and just uh, the ritual of of making it and having it and having it be a part of every meal. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Do you have a favorite kind of music or something that you would prefer to be playing? I, I have a wide variety of music, but I tend to, I like a lot of old melodious Hindi songs of the genre back in the days of um, Lata Mangeshkar, and, you know, uh, Manade. And um, mm-hmm. one of my favorite singers is also um, Bhupen Hazarika. He was from the eastern part of India, an Assamese um, lyricist, music composer. I have some very childhood memories of that, like, you know, mm-hmm. listening to his music. So for me, um, I, I listen to a lot of like, um, you know, uh, Western music too. Like my playlist is probably filled with all, but I like, I tend to get drawn to very, lovely melodious songs like which is focused on more vocal and I used to sing a lot so yeah and I would love to hear three essentials to your self-care three essentials meditation exercise and sleep Mm. what kind of exercise do you tend to gravitate towards Um, something that is calming for me right so right now I'm doing more stretches like pilates and Mm -hmm. I go to a gym for more cardio once a week um, but that takes it's about five uh, five days every week, right? That's my current ritual where wow. I'm not being that, and it's fifty minutes like each day. So, but it's not. I would say I have built that muscle in the last three months because for the last two years or so, it's been like mostly twice a week or you know like twice a week. At one point, I used to run, um, but now it's become. I've realized that my body is more like needs more like something that is more stretching. A flexibility as opposed to really, uh, you know, something very strenuous. Yeah, nice. I would love to know more about the work that you do with Connext. I experienced childhood sexual abuse and I found it connects with the intention of what's next for me and with an intention of being leading fully connected life, right? And helping other people connect with themselves and helping other organizations connect with ideas and and that company and idea and everything is evolving as I'm evolving. And um, right now, really, my mission is to impact 100 million lives in 10 years. Because mm-hmm. I believe that we can shift, you know, conscious leaders to create workplaces that are trauma-informed, as well as we show up boldly and show the world the possibilities that we are not broken. We can shift other people from the identities that are stuck in, you know, shame, blame, and guilt to feeling fully integrated and whole. And we can really be kinder to ourselves. So that's in a nutshell what I do. I do it through Mm -hmm. consulting. Uh, We do it also through coaching private clients. It's been a joy, you know, to, and it's a privilege to be able to, where I was a few years ago, and now, you know, being able to serve and, and see the shift in people that I work with. 
how did you get from that place of healing into uh, I'm I'm ready to create this to make this happen and like, that uh, you're you are doing something so incredible and something that I think probably for for people who are very much in a different part of their own healing journey something that seems completely impossible um because when you are in a certain state of healing it's hard to imagine doing or accomplishing anything um how did how did you get to where you are to creating what you are creating you know if i was reflecting on that question you know and i think the story began probably uh this marks the end of a chapter in my life right 10 years ago um, my husband and I, we were like looking to get pregnant, going through our infertility journey. And that's a lot of it. Like um, I realized, I think the story began in some shape there, right? Well, mm. in, because in my path to motherhood, right, I learned a ton about how I was storing the trauma in my body. And especially after my son was born and as I was in my workplace, uh, a lot of, um, I felt at one point, uh, I felt like I was put in a box and I was putting on this mask, you know, like, and, and in spite of all the achievements, like it wasn't enough. Like there's this constant questioning of self. Um, I'm not good enough. And I also heard those messages sometimes, right. Mm-hmm. The need for being perfectionist. And, and I internalized a lot of that. And it's not until my son was like three or four years ago that I looked at him one day and I was like, wait a second. Like if he, if, if somebody were to talk to him this way, or if somebody, or if uh, something like what happened to me were to happen to him, would it be his fault? No, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that that was a sh- that started a shift in me in some ways, both showing up, starting to show up more boldly in my workplace and asking questions, and um, also planning my exit in some ways, right. Uh, but long story short, um, it took me a few years since then to just go down my own therapy, right? Both talk therapy, top down, and as well as um, a lot of breath work, somatic, you know, experiences, as well as uh, working with coaches through, I mean, the whole, like you name a modality, and I think probably I've done it with the exception <laughs> of MDR. Eventually, what I realized also in my healing journey that I got to the same point where I was thinking, oh, there's still something wrong. I got to fix everything. Like, you know, so I went after every possibility. And even till date, I kind of look at, oh, as I'm coaching and I'm helping, I need to do all these things. So that questioning of, you know, um, the same old fear, like of not being enough, not being good enough, show up at every bold step we take, right? So I wouldn't say that the healing is done from a lifelong like pattern perspective. Mm-hmm. I would say the sexual trauma, sexual abuse, that is uh, a past from a, from a, it doesn't hold any power over me in terms of, but the patterns are very ingrained and I am very much aware and they, they show up and I simply know I have tools to reframe them, right? So that essentially is how I have got here so far. What has helped you the most in terms of recognizing those patterns and beginning to reframe them? You know, at one point I hit uh, I hit a very low point, and I remember I want I was sitting with my husband in a, uh, on a couch, and I wanted to go for therapy, and he basically um, started crying, thinking our marriage mm-hmm. was falling apart. And honestly, mm-hmm. at that point, I wasn't even sure whether it was the marriage. Uh, 
or whether it was the work, whether it was like I didn't want a child, what it was, but I was like, I didn't even have the energy to like tell him, reassure him. Like I just knew that I was the common denominator in everything. And if mm-hmm. things needed to shift, like that, like I needed to do something, you know, that was not the vision of my life that I had when I started down the path. Like, I mean, if you, if you knew me as a child, like people, like my identity was, even though sexual abuse happened, I was very driven. I was ambitious. You know, I, I wanted financial empowerment because I've seen how women, you know, like even in my own household, educated women, like sometimes they were subjugated or or even men, I won't say they were in a very good uh, state because there were a lot of expectations from there. My, you know, my my dad, he was the eldest and gave up his studies and, um, you know, really worked hard. He's, he's almost 70 and in his 70s and he's still mm-hmm. working hard. Bringing it full circle, like, I, I think that is how, you know, like at that point, I realized that something was not right, you know, talking to my husband. And, and I... Um, Basically, I'm not a quitter, you know, and 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 I say that with a caution because sometimes the sexual abuse survivors or people that have experienced, we also tend to take on a lot of responsibility for others' actions, right? To protect. So, so I'm not. When I say I'm not a quitter, I'm not a quitter in me. Somewhere in me, like I have a very deep, deep spiritual sense from very early childhood. I. I have my own conversations with God. Like I have the belief that God is inside me. And I think that's kind of got me through. I relate to that as well. Like I have experienced in my, in my own self and my own healing journey, a sense of um, some kind of resilience Mm -hmm. and a sense of a light. uh, And, you know, that some would be uncomfortable with me calling it God, but I also believe that God is everything and and thus is in me. And, you know, and that sense of resilience and uh and like a light that is precious within me and uh determined to not let that go out and being willing to fight for myself and uh and keep that uh keep that safe or do whatever I have to do to to allow it to to shine the way that it's meant to. And yeah. And I'll add one more thing back to your question. Yeah me the most um I remember being suicidal when I was in my teens right I never took like action or anything but now as I've done the work um I remember saying like maybe I was 18 19 or 6 17 like I don't even remember but there was a period where I was like what am I living like what am I doing like doesn't make sense like and I always had this yearning for like running away just exploring the world and like travel is big for me so um, I think part of, but I knew, and I can't remember what happened exactly, but something happened that 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 made me realize life was a gift. Life was a gift, um, and and not actually. Now I remember it wasn't until like then. It was when I moved to the U.S. I met with a car accident, right? mm-hmm. and um, we totally yeah we totaled the car. It was one of the. Wow. I, I wouldn't say I had trauma from it, but I always, at some point, I had wished that, oh, I, I want to die. And I remember meeting with a car accident. I was in grad school here, and my husband was so frantic, and 911 came, and, you know, some, the, the other, there was another party involved, but nothing happened to me, right? My idea of, uh, even if the, the you know, minuscule thoughts that were there about, like, 
suicidal thoughts or life I don't want to live this life or like that those were gone <laughs> you know? yeah. so so I think part of what what shifted for me like what has got me through is that I believe in life like I believe life is a gift and I believe in karma and I believe we all are here to do something and learn something in this lifetime and that keeps us going keeps me yeah. going so you have a sense of purpose I do can I ask what is your purpose my purpose is to help sexually abused children and women claim power, live with joy, and create a kinder world. There's nothing, nothing more that I would like. If I were to die uh, 10 years from now, I hope more and more people show up. And the statistic once I read somewhere, average age at which people share their childhood sexual abuse stories is 52 years old, if they ever share, right? Yeah. Many a times they don't share. Yeah. So, uh, and it's like people like take their stories to their grave for yeah. what? For something that was not their fault, right? So, and and part of it is also like the way I think, like you know, when somebody's abused, we feel like they're broken or it's some something sh- you know a shame or stigma talking about. And I I think as a society, we also make it like worse not talking about it. Just not talking about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You know, if adults can't come forward and talk, how do you expect this problem to be broken? And this is, if, if we don't break the cycle at home, how do you expect those abusers go and show up in their own lives outside, right? And mm-hmm. and many a times, abusers themselves might have been some kind of, you know, suffered some abuse. Who knows? Emotional, mm-hmm. uh, not, not to justify the action. Yeah, yeah. There are different types of people who abuse and part and 90% of the cases in childhood sexual abuse, people are, um, these are people that you know, they are related and or, you know, uh, at least your, the adults who are supposed to be your caregivers, they trust them or sometimes mm-hmm. it's the caregiver, it's the sibling. So if we don't talk about these problems, bigger problems at home, guess what? We get a world created by mistrust where we are not trusting and we are looking for safety externally. It's so easy to go out on you know, social media platform and you get, get mad. It's so easy to go and attack another country. It's so easy to, you know, do harm. And you because your sense of home and safety is not there. It takes work to preserve life and make a better world and solve problems and heal deep wounds. But it's very much worth it. Yeah. And I, yeah, I 100% agree with you uh, with the the silence and the stigma and I'm a big believer that, of course, it's everyone's choice when and if they disclose, uh, you know, that is always up to everybody. But ultimately, you know, if I'm talking in terms of the bigger picture, like I'm a big believer that the silence and the stigma and like, don't talk about it. This is taboo. Let's not mm, let's just not discuss it. That that is uh, something that perpetuates the issue and something that ultimately just benefits the perpetrators uh, and perpetuates the systems of oppression that are at work and uh, and ultimately enables and perpetuates the violence. When I started to disclose and talk about things openly, like I really kind of battled with with that silence and that stigma and that fear. And then ultimately there was the realization that my silence, uh, it really only did my abusers a favor. And that's kind of, you know, when, when you 
kind of blow that up into the into the big picture, it's kind of like, ah, this is this is the system. This is the system and how it works. Um, it thrives uh, in in silence and in darkness. And that taboo only uh, is only helping it continue. So I'm excited that we are all speaking about it more openly and that people like you are shining a light into dark places and uh, and bringing this conversation, especially into the corporate worlds where this definitely needs to, to be talked about. I love that you're doing trauma-informed work uh, and that you are looking to create trauma-informed practices in business. Um, I'm thrilled to be talking to you, honestly. <laughs> Um, yeah. Part of what uh, you said something, I want to touch upon that, like, you know, the, the shame thrives in like silence sometimes, right? Um, and I want to double down on that, like people, it, I'm not saying that if you, if you are in an unsafe space, and you fear for life, and um, you don't have financial, you know, support and means and things that you go out and just announce to the world where no, that's, I'm not giving that advice. It's always a choice. It's always a choice. And for me, I think eventually what helped me, I go, I got to the place of where the thing that happened, it is a thing that happened. In trauma, what happens is if there's a thing that happened, there's an external thing. And then, then how we internalize. So mm -hmm. when you separate those three, that's when you can realize, oh, this is a thing that happened. But what did I learn from that? And it's not not learned from it that I needed that thing didn't need to happen for me to learn. Maybe there would have been something else that would have happened. I would have learned. So it's for me, um, it's a been a reflection of what have I taken from that, right? What have I learned? Like what are my life lessons? And some coping mechanisms work, like silence, people pleasing, hypervigilance, control. It absolutely worked, you know. And which is why I thrived in my corporate life. Right? <laughs> Externally, a lot of people say, oh, you've done well. And 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 some, you know, and then there'll be some part where I haven't done so well. But it's it's recognizing that, you know, that silence. And then now that I have done all that work, I share because for me, I remember my therapist giving me the permission that, hey, if you don't want to share with anybody, don't share. So I don't think the first round of therapy that I did, I told anybody. Um, mm -hmm. And the second time around, it was important because I knew this was my purpose because I was, I, I was like, hey, if I, if me being in my mid thirties, having so much financial success, being a mom, having a supportive partner, having a good like family, whatever that good family meant, you know, if I can't say this, how are other people going to be able to say this? And in business, if we have all the power, how do I feel so powerless in this aspect, right? So I think part of... Um, it's important to recognize that and um, that there is a journey, right, for everybody. But when you do, if for our listeners, when if you want to share, right, you need to be clear on what is the purpose and then also be in a space to hold the space for other people because not everybody is going to react to you the way you want. And that's been my learning. And um, and and that's that's basically has helped me define my own boundaries of, of mm -hmm. when I share, how I share, and then also do my own inner spiritual work. So you first started to disclose in your mid-30s? I knew a couple of people who were also abused in my early childhood, right? And But then beyond that, I, I had almost shrugged it. And I didn't, it's like never to be talked about. And I tried telling a friend, I remember in my 20s, but their response at the time felt like 
this was my fault. Oh, I played into it, right? So it's, it's and perception is projection. You know, I was getting a lot of judgment from me. Like, trust me, I have questioned all my life. Oh, did I, why did I not run away? Why did I not tell anybody? Or it must be something is wrong with me because it kept repeating with me, right? So, so I didn't tell, stop telling like, um, and then for a number of years, silence, nothing. So yes, I, in my mid thirties, then I started like uh, working through uh, in my therapy and starting mm-hmm. to share, even with my closed and loved ones. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit of your story? Yeah, sure. So um, I was, I experienced uh, sexual abuse um, since my early memories, like three or four years old. I don't remember exact what age it started. Um, and it went on till about my early 20, I would say. Um, so over a period of many years by different people, including a couple of uncles, extended family, my uh, a teacher, a cousin. Uh, now I'm losing track even. Right? Mm. Some of, you know, the, the why I'm sharing is at, at some point these these things hadn't fold over me. Now they don't. Now it's almost like, yes, that thing happened. And and through the course of that, uh, you know, experience, I realized, and I've had conversations even when I shared with my husband probably about a year ago and my rest of my family, I've had conversations with my abusers who are alive. Um, some mm-hmm. of them are alive. Some of them are gone. Um, I've had those conversations and um, I had to come to a space where I knew no matter how they respond, I to claim my power, I needed to have that conversation. The other thing I would add there is many people don't have conversations with their abusers. Many people don't even you know, start to talk about it until abusers are gone. Or some, in some cases, uh, you know, these are abusers who are really close ones in your family, right? So, mm-hmm. so in my case, thankfully, when I shared with my family, uh, they were very supportive. I remember one time my mom was like, hey, at this age, you could have run away, right? And I, I basically, my response to my mom is, mom, you know, like, uh, I trust me, that thought came to me many times, but I wasn't mad at my mom, right? Because what I learned is my mom herself was a survivor and she hadn't told anybody. Like, mm-hmm. so when I started sharing my own family, uh, she had, uh, she realized she had repressed memories. And when pretty much when as I've started sharing in my family, 50% of my family has experienced childhood sexual abuse. And I will tell you that my family is not alone. Many a times people don't know their family of origin stories and this just continues, right? And which is part of the reason a lot of the times like um, the, the stories are struck under the carpet, right? In US, one in four girls, one in six boys experience abuse before they turn 18 years of age Every nine minutes, a child is abused in U.S. That these are documented stats in India. It's I think every fifteen minutes, um, but I believe the numbers are underreported. Mm-hmm. Um, globally, um, I've had conversations with folks in Australia, New Zealand, you know, UK. Globally, I think I believe one in four adults have experienced childhood sexual abuse at some point. Mm-hmm. So you talked about asked about my experience, but you know that's that's what's been my learning, you know, through my own sharing with my family and um, what I've learned. And I want to add a statistic to that about 50% of gender non-conforming individuals. So transgender and non-binary individuals, uh, about 50% 
probably over that um, have experienced uh, sexual abuse in their life. And yeah, it's the the numbers are staggering. This is an epidemic, and it does. Uh, there are cycles in in families, and it's it's one of those things where um, it's always uh, kind of surreal talking to someone who thinks that their life is completely untouched by this um, because I promise it's not. <laughs> I, I I promise it's not. <laughs> um, it- it's it's surreal. I mean, I'll tell you, like, so I've done surveys um, in some of the forums that I've spoken. And thank you for adding that statistic. I mean, it's so, um, you know, I think gender nonconforming folks and uh, trans people, like, they experience additional layer of complexity. They don't get the support even in families. And sometimes, you know, you have economically under-advantaged standpoint, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because our... Uh, Societies are designed for some reason. I feel like, in particularly in the last 200, 300 years, it's kind of gone differently because in the past there was no such, at least from coming from the Eastern kind of cultures, like, you know, there was a gender spectrum. Like, we might not say, like, we've seen those things in our historical, like, you know, mythology or in our, you know, um, texts or things, right? So there's a mm-hmm. masculine energy, there's a feminine energy, but there's this, so much of this toxic, you know, masculinity or either you're a man or a woman or a, these things mm-hmm. are relatively I think uh, a way for organization like societies to find structure that are easy to like explain and uphold in quotes mm-hmm. like you know it's a totally d- different discussion from another day but that those those things have actually sometimes means that people are if I don't feel you fit in that category, you can belong to my place and if you don't belong to that place, whether it's a work or economic opportunity, greater chance of being, you know, sexually abused because some of those things, again, in broth health or other sex works, these things thrive, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I, I agree. It's a conversation for another day, but I'm always moved to just straight up say for, for folks that aren't aware, the gender binary is a racist colonial thing that has been enacted as a form of violence upon other cultures. So that's, if you're listening look it up (laughs) (laughs) but yeah yeah. communicating with your abusers uh if you're comfortable talking about that in any regard i know that that's something that a lot of survivors struggle with whether they should do that uh a lot of curiosity about what that might look like or how how it feels for different people or if they should if they shouldn't um and just uh i I, it's a very big scary confusing question so it, it is and and uh, the short answer is um only that person who has experienced abuse you get to decide that and uh, and that that what you want to do that may vary as you process your trauma and heal right so for mm-hmm. me it wasn't the very first day when i said hey i'm going to go and tell like you suck you know like i'm all those thoughts were there right I mean, part of me, like a, a, la- a large part of my life was probably in fear because I would see them in social circles, as weddings, or in, you know, when I would go visit the family or when we are talking in our family. And uh, um, so it wasn't day one. I think some of it started with uh, one of them passed away and I felt like a deep sense of like relief, but also like a d- really different mixed feelings, you know? A, a, a strange sense of compassion also like and mm. what their life would have been so I, I would say for me it was uh 
it was a lot of it is like writing letters. I remember when I started on this path, reading Book of Forgiving by Desmond Tutu and uh, his daughter. I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now on the, the other name, but Book of Forgiving. And one of the exercises mm-hmm. was write those letters and basically uh, to forgive, uh, venting all your emotions and and like pick some stones from the garden. And, and I might not be recollecting it fully, but picking up stones and holding it like in your hand, right? And then walking around and holding and seeing like how heavy you feel and at some point just let go and put it back in the garden or somewhere keep away and I resonated with that because it felt like and I, I hadn't told anybody so I used to lock the door in my office and I would do all these things periodically right I would write I would write I would write and eventually I got to a point where initially I started with probably about 26 people in my life right uh, which was crazy because, and this this is not just sexual abuse. This was like anything anybody who's hurt me ever before. I had I felt like a charge at that point. Like, yeah. so I got to the place of sharing with the abusers because I basically that story just like changed. I'm like I'm tired. At one point I got tired. I'm like, come on, this happened like so long ago. Like, what wh- what does it mean for me now? Like, what what do I want to learn from this? Right. So. What what lessons have I taken in my life? Like so, the, my first thing was first, I talked about some of the patterns which I realized were not serving me. Like how I was showing up, not believing in me, not trusting in me. Like asking for things, but like almost expecting the other person to reject it. You know, so I would ask with that energy, right? So eventually, when I did a lot of the spiritual work, and I got to a point where. I felt like that conversation was important, not for, not for like, the forgiveness has nothing to do with the, you know, the abuser. It has everything to do with me, right? I I came to this epiphany that, you know, once I tell the story and once I forgive them, I would have no excuse for me on why I'm choosing every single day to recreate that drama in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, it might sound an extreme form for somebody who's really still in that feeling like a victim, right? And 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 then I'm not saying that they're not victims, but being in that mindset of like, it is because of that person that even in my 50s and 60s and 70s, I'm suffering or like I'm, I'm sucking at this relationship or, you know, but once you realize that thing happened, right? And yes, it's hard, it's there, but they have no power over you, right? So in my case, that I got to that point, and that's why I had the conversation. My experience was in one case, this person probably is in his 50s, and I simply walked up to my grandmother died earlier this year. So when I was in India, I saw them, and I mm-hmm. walked up to them, and I said, hey, I remember what happened, and I want you to know that I forgive you, and you have no power over me, and I hope you've learned. I hope you're well, and you take actions to correct the thing. And this, in that wow. moment, that person literally wanted to run away. They they just looked at said and they, they told my said my name. They said, "Look, I'm I'm not that person. I've changed." And they were like scared. Like I could I could feel that. Like they didn't expect that, right? And I I just I I simply just had to do it. And I don't know yeah. what happened. I know um, in another case, I called them. Um, with another abuser and they said they have gone down their own path of like spiritual journey but whether I completely believe or not for me it was also important that you know as an abuser that they forgive themselves and they do the work be responsible 
to tell that story and take that learning because part of, you know, it doesn't serve anybody to keep secrets and like stay, like some people belong in jail, like because we can't deal with them, right? But most often, like sometimes you've made one mistake as a teenager or you were exploring or, you know, you didn't know anything better. I mean, I can, there are so many other explanations or, or maybe you, you were not, even, they were not even doing this thing to me. There was something going on in their life and they acted. There are all kinds of possible explanations. For me, it didn't matter what their reasons were, really mm-hmm. for me, because I knew my life, my life, like I was tired of having those same stories, like be the reason to be a certain way in life. I wanted freedom. I wanted no no more secrets in my life. No more like uh, easy conversations. No more like trying to fix myself, right? That's what I wanted. So I, I chose to have those conversations. Wow. At least with a, with, with a couple of people that I was able to. Can you talk a little bit about what forgiveness means to you or how you define forgiveness or um, what it feels like for you? Yeah. So from a sexual abuse perspective, I would say I'm very clear on that. In some of the other areas, it's a constant struggle. Some things come up and then you're like, I'm still getting stuck in shame, blame and guilt. So I have to work on me. Right. So from a sexual abuse perspective uh, with all the people, uh, and, and I don't think there's any difference, by the way, across different categories. Right. Forgiveness really means that being truly responsible for my life, right? Mm-hmm. That and forgiveness, to get to the forgiveness, you might feel all the anger. You have to go underneath that, What acknowledge what happened, first of all, right? And acknowledge like what you lost in that, right? Or what is that sense of like, whether is it the trust, whether it is that, you know, that you you are never the same again you started becoming you know like hyper vigilant like looking you know looking for problems fears and trying to being in survival mode so i have you have to acknowledge all of those things that you lost versus being that free spirit a child who was like simply exploring the world so once you explore that and do the work then it becomes that hey wait a second i'm still that person where is that person? That person is inside me. And you know what? Despite everything that has happened, they haven't been able to touch that soul. So once you get to that space, I believe you can forgive. I believe. But I don't know which one comes first, honestly. Right? Mm-hmm. Each person has their, their yeah. own process. And, and, and for me, it's, a, it's been a journey over several years. Thank you for talking about that. I know, I know forgiveness is like a very touchy subject for, uh, for everybody on their healing journey and, uh, and everyone has very different opinions and, uh, you know, for some people it holds a place in, in their healing journey. Some people maybe not like everyone's got something different to say about it. So I really appreciate you talking about it and and sharing your, your journey with it. I would also add forgiveness has, uh, doesn't mean that you're absolving other people of their crimes or you know heinous things that they might have done right Mm -hmm. I think a lot of sometimes when there's resistance I feel forgiveness is confused with hey here's the thing that happened right Mm -hmm. what is the other person's responsibility it forgiveness doesn't mean you take responsibility for like everything it doesn't it simply means you you're being responsible for your life moving forward Mm -hmm. 
Thank you for clarifying that. Cause that is the, like that sticking point with forgiveness for a lot of people is the feeling that you are saying like, I don't hold you responsible anymore, or I don't think this was wrong anymore or something like that. So it's, I appreciate the clarification. What have you struggled the most with in healing? Three areas, um, intimacy, mm-hmm. uh, repairing my uh, attachment with my mother, right? And then as a mom um, with my child. So it's a more like intimacy, your relationship, like intimacy relationship, as well as like the caregiver wounds. And then how I am breaking that cycle with my son. Mm-hmm. And these are like the three most closest relationships that, that I have. And that is where these things show up because, you know, part of the healing is also learning to establish boundaries, right? And as you learn to establish boundaries, you realize that so much of, because of the trauma that we had in our family with my mom and me, like how we were like, like, so for example, I I only saw my mom very happy. Hey, she's constantly like doing things, happy, smiling, like working too late. And she was a superwoman growing up as I felt, right? And at some point, like people would say so many mean things and she would be like, you know, what's the point of like, if you, you know, me being educated, if I react to people, right. And I would be like, like aggravated. I'm like, mom, you cannot take up like, you know, bad people saying some wrong things because my dad was complete extreme. Like he was very open and he was, he would like, I learned so much from my dad too, like being like, you know, very confident, very independent, right. And go get it. And my mom was the same way, but at the same time, I saw this clash of personalities in terms of like the people pleasers and then the men you know and which is I think true for many societies like you know women and men right so for me as I've gone through my own healing with my own healing my mom I've I've learned set like healthy boundaries with my mom as well and that has been challenging for her too because I'm that person who picks up the call and calls her every day right because at some point I also didn't want to be the one where um, I don't speak to her one day and she's gone and I don't like I regret right so so for me it's been like okay you know uh if I am talking to everybody every day and I have work and I'm a mom and I'm building my business and you know I want I'm working on my intimacy I'm showing up in the world in a bigger way there are sometimes some conversations I don't need to have with everybody you know so so with my mom it's been about hey uh like you have a choice, mom, like sometimes it's, it's so it, it, again, this is not a podcast for my mom, but I think it's relevant for many other people because we all struggle with the boundaries with the closest one. Does that help? It does. No, thank you for talking about that. I think, uh, I think a lot of us struggle with boundaries and it's true. The closer, the closer that people are to us, uh, the more difficult it is. And especially your, your close family members, especially people you've grown up with, you know, like if you are raised with a certain kind of boundaries, um, you know, or lack of boundaries, then inserting them or creating them in that, in that relationship and changing the dynamic, um, it can be, it can be quite a struggle and you know in in a relationship where there have been no boundaries suddenly putting up boundaries to that other person it can feel like an attack yeah. uh, it's very difficult yeah the other part uh, as you were talking about in setting the boundaries and you know healing is you know sometimes people pleasing and th- there are other people who are complete extreme megalomaniacs right these are all separate forms of control right so sometimes we are mm-hmm. like we are like oh they're so nice but you know by being nice we are trying to control the reaction <laughs> for everybody 
And here's another way people are being demeaning, but they're trying to control the outcome. So once you realize that these are two ways of control and you realize, holy cow, like, what am I doing? Like, am I like, why do I need to always smile if I'm not happy? Yeah. Why do yeah. I like, it's a different thing. I'm, I'm a joyous person. I'm joyful. You know, some things don't bother me. I'm, I'll, I'll smile. I'll be centered. But if I don't feel like smiling, I don't. I won't. Yeah. Right? So I think these are very subtle points, but I, I feel like um, those are the things that I have had to learn the most. It, like establishing those boundaries and, mm-hmm. and establishing that sense of who I am, you know, without all these beliefs that, that I had learned, you know. Mm-hmm. And where have you found strength and support? There's so many, so many ways, you know, so many ways. I mean, I, I feel blessed every day. Like I have a very supportive family, like with my husband, with my son, with my extended families. Like I, I, uh, in some ways, you know, part of it is also, I think it's my inner strength. Like the more I believe and I show up, um, other people also are there because I believe people are perfectly capable of evolving and growing with you. And sometimes we we have judgment for other people that they can't meet our standards. So they can't be with us. They can't fulfill our needs that we don't even ask for support. Right. So it's been, I think it's my community, but at the same time, the, the trust in me asking for what I need and reaching out all these things have helped me really create my own uh, uh, family of choice, like uh, mm-hmm. different tribes, community friends that I'm part of, I'm a I'm a relationship builder. Um, I'm I, I thrive on relationships, connections, and and I don't like shallow conversations. So so part of where that's where I've got the support. But part of that uh, also has meant that there are some people who were there for a reason or a season, but they have no space in my life right now. I love that you included yourself in that support. That's a really beautiful answer, and I just so appreciate it. <laughs> In our tech call, we touched upon epigenetic trauma just a little bit, but I do want to make space to ask what role race or racism or epigenetic trauma has played in your life or in your healing. You know, until the murder of George Floyd, right? I didn't even think what I experienced in my corporate life was any form of like racism, right? Mm. I grew up in an area where we were minority. So I've always felt like a person that who didn't belong. And I had to learn another language. I, I'm multilingual. Like I speak three languages, which is very common, by the way, outside of US for folks, right? So it is. <laughs> me, right? So for me, like the accent, how you speak and, uh, you know, it's like so part of life, right? And everybody's unique. But what I realized so my story when I moved here and I worked through was, hey, you, you've got to work hard, suck it up. And just there's so much, so many problems you have. You have all these opportunities to make good use. But what I realized is um, the, the, the racism and, you know, microaggressions and things, they take a toll on people, right? Um, so there's a study that was done um, on adverse childhood experiences back in mm-hmm. the 90s by CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And this, they found there are three areas of abuse, right? So, the, sorry, three areas, um, abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction, right? So this was done on 17,000 plus Caucasian uh, families and middle class, what you would think. And what was interesting is ACEs are very common. I think about, you, you know, 
I can't remember the statistics right now, but they are very common. What's uncommon is, you know, if you have four or more ACEs, you are much more likely to have developed, you know, mental health issues like depression and suicidal thoughts. And there was a similar study then that was later done to include, um, uh, you know, some of the area people that have been victims of, you know, racism, bullying, and other type of, you know, societal aggressions, if you will, yeah. right? And that study, what was interesting when you compare the results that com- communities that are marginalized, they are many more times now, you know, likely to experience ACEs, right? Because of that, right? Because of that additional, you know, yeah. so what that means is the health outcomes, um, the brain's wiring, you know, like all of this, these are so different when you look closely based on whether somebody had abuse, neglect, or, uh, you know, family dysfunction, or additional, you know, community violence, right, which trans folks might, you know, and I'm not aware of the study specifically on that, if it was included, but I, I suspect that if uh, such a study was done, we would find a whole nother layer of, you know, complexity. Yeah. So, um, th- this is to say that these things are real, right? And when you um, when you overlay all of these sources of trauma, um, there's research. There's a book on you know uh, uh, body keeps the score, right? Which talks about war, and this is one of my favorite books um, um, for for understanding trauma. There are bo- there are books by you know Dr. Peter Levine like uh, Waking the Tiger. Um, there's so much like work done like. Trauma actually changes our brain's wiring like permanently, right? So, and let me make that clear. You may have, you know, additional. Uh, so, for example, in my case, a lot of the things were going well, right? Like I had a good family, food, and not that was not a problem. I had other good role models, you know, had other opportunities. So, I mm-hmm. was able to find some gifts in life along with some of the gaps that I had in my life, right? So not everybody. So once you have those gifts and, you know, we start thinking, developing new habits, we start reaching out, we start, once we become aware, it, it is possible to get, create new wirings, you know, in our brain, right? But a lot, but unless we are aware, like our bodies are sometimes stuck in that trauma. So unless, you know, we become aware, our mind or body is like completely different spaces and spiritually, we are not even connected. So. Now I almost forgot what the question was, but you know these, these the healing and the epigenetics, right? They they do play a role. I'm I've been making notes um, as as you've been talking for all the things that I'm going to include in episode notes. So be able to link people to the ACE research and you know have a thing so that they can you know find an explanation of what that is. Maybe check into oh where how many do I have. <laughs> Because it's it's a great thing to be aware of. Because um, it surprises a lot of us, um, like actually going through that ACE checklist and thinking, "Oh, that did affect me. I did experience that." And uh, and especially, you know, so often as we're growing up, we um, especially sometimes in uh, you know in in an abusive or or difficult environment, the privileges that we do experience, they are held up to us so strongly, you know, say, see, you have this and you have this and you have this. What do you, what's wrong? What could you possibly have to cry about? Like, and, uh, you know, and not recognizing all these, you know, insidious things that are occurring kind of under the surface. Um, and especially if, 
if you are in a society that doesn't want you to notice that you are being oppressed, um, you know, or, you know, that if there's violence that is being enacted upon you on a systemic level that no one really wants you to talk about. When you talk about the oppressed, you know, the systemic level issues and the personal, I think a lot of the focus we talked about earlier was more personal. And I think it becomes all the more important personally to take care because of these systemic uh, issues, right? Because uh, don't get me wrong, like systemic issues are there and there'll always be some systemic issues. I wish the world, I, I wish, you know, it was easier to say we would all have perfect world. If not this, there would be some other problem. It's just the nature of life. To be able to do the systemic work, right? It's super important and we do that inner work and personal work to be able to navigate because these changes do take time. Right mm-hmm. now, what we are seeing you know, it, it's not an accident that Kalpa or similar people like are coming up and sharing their stories, you know, generationally, like, you know, I think that Me Too a few years ago and pandemic, people are questioning a lot of the things are not working, you know, that the sometimes the abuse oppressed might have been stuck at home, you know? Yeah. So without any connection or recourse. So I think a lot of these stories are coming up and we've started seeing the stories more from a corporate environment and now slowly some of the personal stories. All right. So you, I believe this is like we are in that cusp of a lifetime for, for the next hundred years, the workplaces, the, you know, the, our family lives and everything. We need to shift where we incorporate a lot of the feminine and a lot of that energy to be able to create a space that works for many people. Right. So it's mm-hmm. so the discussion that you and I are having, um, it becomes even more important that people become aware from ACE or, you know, just going through that study. And it has like 10, to your point, like 10 checklists. When I saw it for the first time, when I, I was a volunteer uh, for foster kids, I was like, wow. <laughs> and then I went down, there's a beautiful TED talk by Dr. Nadine Harris, and she has a book, Deep It Well which also talks about some of the health outcomes on, on the ACEs. So highly, highly mm. recommend people going through. Uh, if one thing you want to take away from this call is just be aware of your ACEs yeah. um, and, and be aware. But that is where your work should stop from using the label because we sometimes get stuck in that identity, right? Be aware that it happened to you and now you do the work and then move on. And that move on doesn't mean quickly I became aware and, hey, I forgive and but be aware, awareness is the first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I love that, that you mentioned that as well, you know, just kind of identify, then don't get stuck in, I identify, I am this, this is what I am forever. And, you know, to be able to to transcend that and move forward. And yeah, I kind of relate that to, ah, oh, there's, I've, I've had so many interesting conversations uh, at various points with, with other survivors in my life about a certain point of healing that's really difficult to talk about. Uh, and it is also really difficult when you are dealing with people who aren't survivors in your life, who are maybe noticing the way that you are experiencing or articulating certain things, or maybe acting as you are doing healing work. And one thing that comes up is when you are really acknowledging like, hey, this happened to me and really feeling it and being able to identify like this was wrong, this was an assault or this was an, you know, an abusive situation and I am a victim of such and such. And then there's, I think, this really normal place where you get stuck for a little bit, which is um, that I, I 
I am a victim or I was a victim. And that's really hard to, it's really uncomfortable for all of us uh, in so many different ways. And then there is an empowering stepping outside that and no longer being kind of stuck in that that victim mode where you are that person that things happen to, um, you know, or that, you know, people hurt you and, you know, it's easy to to get stuck in, in that mode, especially if you've experienced childhood abuse, um, where this is a pattern that's been present throughout so much of your formative years. And then exiting that and finding, you know, whether it's identifying with the term like survivor or whatever it means to uh, to become empowered, to exit that that kind of uh, like victim headspace and um, and just move out of that a little bit and change your narrative or the stories that you tell about yourself, the stories that you tell you about you. <laughs> No, I I totally, we could geek out on that. I was listening to this podcast the other day by Ezra Klein, and I I can't remember who the author is. She's amazing. And they were Mm. talking about how for, um, it's more, in a particularly East European situation, I think they were talking about, I'm completely drawing a blank exactly what context, but one of the, 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 it was about the stories sometimes we talk about survivor or hey I was this victim is I mean we think that is or if I'm a mental if I have mental illness that that is my identity right and then I am this and my future is predicted and this is what I am right so the the, the caution we need to draw there right is in some cases yes this this may be true but which means that you have certain conditions and there may be different ways of managing that and it may be possible, though, from a free will perspective to shift some things, right? So the labels go only so far as really acknowledging that, oh, this damage was done, right? Or this incident happened. And mm-hmm. this is why I am the way I am wired, which means that, oh, it is, I may need these additional things to be in a certain way. So, and again, mental is completely different than, you know, sexual abuse and all like, I mm-hmm. want to be very clear. I'm not, a, I'm not talking from a medical like advice perspective, but it's just the stories, you know, the stories we tell and sometimes the yeah. stories can be empowering. Other times the stories can keep us stuck forever in that space. And it's really the stories that move our life forward. So really being aware of what stories we are carrying about our identities, you know, as, as, people that have experienced trauma or certain events. Yeah. Big difference between I have this wound versus I am this wound. That's difficult. Yeah. What role does spirituality play in your healing? Uh, And invite you to share a little bit about your meditation practice, which you've mentioned. Sure. So spirituality has played like many different roles. Like as of now, right, I start my day um, sometime in the morning first half. I invest 30 minutes in meditation that includes two or three different various combinations of meditations. But one is um, a, a guided meditation that um, I was part of Spirit, Brahma Kumari's uh, uh, spiritual community. Um, and they during pandemic, one of my friends introduced me to them. And then I went through some Raj Yoga, some practices. And the, the thing that has stayed with me is that one of the videos is like around 15 minutes. I, I listen to that every morning. And along with that, there are two other meditations I do from Chani app. This is an app for like astrology, but I find that be- the, the 
the meditations like to be beautiful and I need I I'm a person who likes something guided because if I'm sitting I sometimes I will just fall asleep and my I have a very active mind right so I, I so those things have worked for me and I've built my meditation from like starting with like two minutes a day to like now 30 minutes consistently for almost like the last um, few months the spirituality is beyond meditation also right spirituality is for me I think for me spirituality comes to you know being fully present in my life as a mom as a wife as a you know as a business owner as somebody who has this living breathing body right? I, I joke with my husband like it would have been so easy I could like we could just run away to the cave or I could just go on silent meditation and retreats and like be there and meditate all the time in in like a you know lone mountain or top of a mountain <laughs> I also believe we have a gift of life right so for me too, spirituality is uh, acknowledging that this body is like impermanent and we came in a certain way and we'll all be gone before like the blink of this eye, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, for me, I think spirituality is as simple as that, that reminder. So it just helps me um, keep my ego aside. Um, I'm not successful always, right? But that's where the meditation and um, breathing and uh, those you know, practices that I have, like as simple as like going out and touching, standing on the grass and looking at the sky, you know, once a day, um, just the way, way to be in my body, because part of what I realized, Hecate, is my, um, like, with all the experiences that I had around, you know, abuse and trauma, I had stopped being in my body, right, I had stopped being in my body. So part of all of my spiritual practices are absorbing my body where my mind is going and where my parts are going and where is my spirit like what does my spirit want right so I think it's a combination of all those things that are um, that are really 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 uh, critical for me like mm-hmm. uh, and, and they they form my core practices around spirituality how did you first start to realize that you were having trouble being in your own body or that that was an issue and start to address it there were many different inflection points, right? Um, like when we got married, right? Like, and we started having discussions around having a child. Like I never wanted to have a child. I never even wanted to get married, right? That was my narrative, right? At the time, right? So at different points in time, I feel like I've run away from my being in my body. But most recent like uh, examples I would give are where I started noticing that my I'm not my mind, right? Like, and that was like, once I started meditation, I would sit and sometimes people, like I would realize, right? In my case that I would sit and, you know, when you're calm and you're sitting, like all these thoughts are coming. It's like, mind is like a chatterbox. Like you don't want to think about that person, but those are the thoughts that are coming, right? The monkey mind. Right. And 80, 90% of your thoughts are the same. So it's when I started observing those things, that's when I realized, oh my God, like, why am I thinking of this? And, and there's a difference in, you know, initially when you start becoming aware, like you are, I've always been a little bit of self-aware, I would say. So it doesn't, it's not like a new thing for me. Right. But I've been self-aware from the perspective of being hard on me. Right. But now the self-awareness has come from, oh, interesting that I'm thinking of this. What? So what, what does that mean? What am I avoiding? Like, 
what should I be focused, like whatever you focus, right? Your attention, wherever you focus your attention, that grows, right? That just, that's just a fact basically, right? So for me, I noticed that I was not being in my body, I would say more profoundly when I committed fully to my creating my business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there've been many different times, like a parent, when I was being a mom, when I was working, I quit a job, like I got laid up many, many different times. But I think it's, it, it, it has come to a even deeper kind of understanding when being a business owner and creating business and realizing, oh, how am I showing up? Okay, what is my story? Like, and then realizing, okay, the identity of me as a business owner is different than identity of me as a person and identity of me as a person uh, is I am not my body, I'm not my mind, I'm not my spirit, like, then who am I, right? So mm. I don't know if it's making sense, but it's, it's a, um, I wish I had a more coherent answer here, but I think it's a, it's a series of very different points in time where I've realized I've not been in my body. And it's through those grounding practices, daily rituals that I, I, I realize when I'm not in my body. Thank you for talking about that. So I'd love to ask about partnership and you've talked about intimacy. So you are married, you have presumably a relationship with your husband. And <laughs> I'd love to, to ask um, about that, uh, it, you know, to, to whatever degree you are comfortable talking about it. Cause one of, one of the questions that I get asked the most uh, by other survivors uh, as a person that also has a partnership is how do you do that? How do you have a healthy relationship post-trauma? Uh, you know, because there is a point in time in healing where you're like, I can't do that. I'll never have that. I am not capable of doing that. And I wanted to to just ask you about intimacy and partnership. First of all, I would say um, I think the one of the myths we have is relationship intimacy should be easy. You get your life partner like magic and everything is like you know, Prince Charming came or whoever, Cinderella, like, and your life is ha- happily ever after. That Horse, life sunset, happen. done. Right. Roll credits. <laughs> Relationships take work, right? They do take work. It, they don't need to be hard, but um, but you do. It, you need to be intentional and 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 want it. I and I was reflecting on this. Um, the, my husband will probably say, I, I I think from the time we've been married, I've probably said numerous times, I I'm done. I want to divorce you, and I want to go right. Mm-hmm. And it's been one of my go-to stories to be avo- to be able to basically avoid intimacy, um, avoid, you know, where I feel like we could have deeper connection, but then the, having that conversation seems so scary that it's easier to just go to that, you know what, I'm done, I'm just going to leave and I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. That's just a reality, right? So let's just acknowledge that. Number two, what's been also challenging, like one in two marriages, I think, fail, like divorce rates. I think there's also a lot of myth, like growing, growing up in India or divorces happen in America and in India, it doesn't. But trust me, like I've, be, I've had many best close family, you know, friends who we've spent like Friday evenings, late nights and over the years, their relationship have fell apart. And um, as as the relationship fell apart, like I, I felt like both me and my husband, we came together or part of us like a part of us chipped away because you have memories and, you know, you have so many things and you, it, it, it became a, like very hard to uh, pick a side. Right. And, 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 and we 
feel like you failed at understanding what the you know your friends needed you didn't even know what was going on right so and it's not i want to be clear it's not about us but at the same time it takes a lot of work to stay married and stay mm-hmm. in any kind of relationship i'm not even saying marriage committed partnerships right so i think the the foundation of a lot of these relationships is being open communication i, th- I think we have a lot of resentment if we don't ask and part of my challenge my own learning has been advocating for myself believing fully in me without even you know judging my partner if they are capable or if they are going to say yes or no because a lot of the times in the past i would say from like for example i want to do this but hey do you think like i would go with that energy like tentative energy and then knowing or believing that they are going to say no guess what then they say no and then you i'm i'm, I'm presenting you know uh, so I think part of my own learning has come and this is the trauma pattern because we don't believe we don't trust I'm not worthy I'm not loved I'm not understood I'm not seen I'm not heard these are my narratives right mm. so um I, and for me it's like I'm not heard like if I'm not listened to so I I every fight I get into it's almost that narrative that you didn't hear me right so for me now I'm aware right so for for an intimacy particularly in a committed partnership like you, you each of us have to acknowledge that we are like we are working on it you know and you take turns in life and i i won't say that it's i wish i had a very clear answer right but if anyone who who is running away from intimacy or things also know that it's just running away doesn't solve your problems you'll have all kinds of problems once once you you have a life to share with people it's beautiful because you know what like like i i joke so it's like my child right he, he he's like mom can i watch the tv right and he'll watch the tv but and we'll allow him to watch it thinking that he we are going to get some time but the moment we start talking he's dad 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 can you do you see this this is so funny and he'll say mom 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 can you see this like this is so funny so we we love to share the joy with other people around us right i think these are the moments that keep us that remind me that you know why we want the relationship so why i want the relationship to work right so for trauma anyone who's experienced trauma you might have avoidance like in terms of intimacy and that's that just being aware so a lot of the work uh, when you do on body whether you know breath work uh, meditation or you know grounding and and setting your boundaries of what touches okay what is not okay you know if you're early in your life like in your Late, you know 20s or 30s and you are you are dating you don't need to share your trauma with anybody you don't trust right they don't need to know something it's also important that you work or understand your any attachment wounds that you might have based on whether how how your caregivers were present or not in your life and being aware i ha- always highly recommend therapy if possible if not there's a there's a great book i read by um drama of the gifted child by alice miller It's I'm fun. in the middle of that. Yeah. Right. How are you finding that? I am struggling to read it because <laughs> it's very intense. Uh cuz I I yeah, I I won't go too into it, but it's uh it's it's poking me. It's poking me in soft spots. <laughs> That's a good thing, but it is a challenging thing. So, it's challenging me in a good way. It is. And you know, it's 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 one of those things we are going back like acknowledging what happened because I also had some of the narratives of oh my caregivers were present and and all of that but 
here's the thing I would say, you know, we struggle in relationship because we don't take the time to heal our attachment wounds with our caregivers, right? And we struggle in the same area as a mom or as a parent or as a dad, because we are playing the same, the way we saw our parents be with each other in a relationship, whether, you know, um, like, so in my case, my mom was the emotional person, right? Always talking and men usually are avoiding their feelings. So, you know, you get into a relationship issue because that's where, you know, you you feel like the feeling was feeling something was not safe. Mm. You were not allowed to feel those feelings when as a child, right? So um, I say that to say, though, just be aware of that to do the work, you know, on you. And, and I hope I didn't scare anybody here at this point. No, but I, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a work in progress, you know, and that's life. You mentioned that you disclosed to your husband about a year ago. Is that correct? Yes. Can you speak to survivors who maybe are in a relationship and are considering disclosing to their partner? So for uh, the one advice I would have is, right, be very clear on why you are sharing, right? So for me, I came to a point and we've been, if I didn't mention earlier, we've been married now for almost 16 years, going on 17. We've we've known each other for 17 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had tried telling it maybe earlier on when either I was dating or my, there were, you know, India, there's all arranged marriages. So some proposals were coming. And I remember telling that to the first person, but that guy turned out to be a cheater at the time, right? Mm-hmm. They were getting, they were, you know, so I have had also all kinds of experiences as, you know, like in relationships, right? So my part of this thing was, you know what? Like it was an important story I tried telling, and this guy turned out to be cheated. Why do they need to know about my family? Okay, you know what? I'm I'm gone. They are done. Like all that story is done. I'm independent. I'm working. You know, I, my husband is a good person. He's supporting me. Why do I need to bother about all these things, right? But once I learned about cases, once I learned about you know like how my child, like that this was my own work, like in therapy, and how I was showing up in relationships, and I needed to tell him to be able to then help him help me right basically staying married being with him and knowing my pattern so I my intention was clear at the time so I and and I wasn't expect and I had done the work to hold the space now some people share from day one and that's okay and I know many couples who haven't shared like some of many of my friends and many many of my friends they have shared recently in recent years as there's been more talk about this awareness so each person is different. Uh, my only my advice would be just know why you are sharing and be prepared to hold the space also, you know, for however your partner might respond. And then if you are in a relationship and if you're not survivor by chance of listening to this podcast, also know that it's a privilege when somebody shares with you and you have you are not entitled to anybody's private life, no matter how they are your partner or anything, you know. And and when they share, it's none of your business to go confront anybody like it's it's really that person's they are perfectly capable adult beings if they have experienced childhood sexual abuse they can manage their relationship if you have a problem with anybody it's your own other drama that's going on right so mm-hmm. um, and I've had to say that to multiple people in my life at different points in time as I've done this this, this. and thankfully mm-hmm. I was very clear. I was confident, and I have done that work. Uh, it takes a toll, though. Uh, you know, I, I've learned my boundaries in that process. Is there anything that you want to say to the survivors that are listening? I would say, if you are, um, 
if you have experienced childhood sexual abuse, right, um, for any of the listeners, and sometimes we don't even know we have repressed memories, and you know, you might be uh, encountering toxic people in your life or toxic relationships or feeling like everybody is out to get you. The, sometimes the patterns show up in many different ways or different health outcomes. And uh, you start to have these conversations, have grace for yourself, like be kind to yourself, be really, really kind, you know, just yeah. know that you are not alone and, and reach out, whether it's a therapy, you know, or whether it's a coaching, I provide coaching, but there are thousands of hundreds of, you know, other people who provide coaching to there, there could be a friend who you can confide into, or maybe a stranger. Sometimes it's easier to confide into strangers than than people you love, particularly in this case. So, um, find somebody and and find a way to you know release whether it's journaling and or writing letters and releasing, whether it's reading books. But find something and know that you are not alone. I'm just so incredibly grateful for your presence for all of your deeply authentic answers to all of these questions. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself and your journey. And uh, it's just been such an honor and a privilege to to speak with you. And thank you so much for for joining me. Thank you so much. It was such a lovely conversation. I, uh, I, I greatly enjoyed, you know, the conversation. Thank you for the platform as well. Yeah, no, thank you for being here. And I hope that you have a beautiful rest of your day. And thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Stay in touch. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening. Please check episode notes. There you will find links to learn more about Kalpa, the work she's doing with Connext Group, and the many books and resources that were mentioned during our talk. The Season 4 Letters for the Fire Project is receiving submissions till the end of the year. This is the final month I'll be accepting submissions. Last call. Listeners are welcome to write a letter to their rapist or abuser, and I will read it during a special episode at the end of Season 4. If you'd like to learn more about how to submit your letter and participate in the project, please check out the link in episode notes. A huge shout-out to my Patreon members who make everything possible. Sadanka, Emerald, Kathleen, Betty, Sharanya, Ashley, and Christopher. You all mean so, so much to me, and none of this would be possible without you. Thank you. I am currently fundraising to afford a Descript subscription in order to make Finding OK more accessible to the deaf, hearing impaired, and neurodivergent communities by providing transcripts for episodes. This is the next big step for Finding OK, and it will help me reach more survivors who are seeking support. Any and all help is appreciated. We're now only $45 away from reaching the goal, and anyone that contributes will be thanked in the end-of-season thank you episode. Become a Patreon member at various tiers to support the podcast and to gain access to bonus picks, perks, audio, sneak peeks, and early access and video episodes. Make sure to follow me on YouTube because episodes from previous seasons are starting to become available. The video of this episode with Kalpa will be available to Tier 3 patrons. You can stay updated by following me on Instagram, and you can find me live streaming on Twitch, where I play chill games, paint, do ASMR, tattoo, edit the podcast live, and do occasional Finding OK Q&A streams, where you can ask me anything. 
It's honestly the best way to get to know me and connect on a more personal level. I hope to see you there. Please visit the podcast website, www.finding-ok.com. It's where you can find all the links to my social media. It's where you can learn more about me and all my guests. It's where you can read reviews, leave reviews, contact me. It's also where you can find links to donate. Did you know you can leave me a voice message on my website? Leave one in the next month or so, and it could be chosen to be played in the end-of-season thank-you episode. It's a great way to ask listener questions, share what the podcast means to you, thank one of my guests, or let me know which is your favorite episode and why. I hope to hear from you. There's nothing like actually hearing your voices. It honestly makes me cry. Finding OK is crowdfunded. Twitch and Patreon are my main sources of income. It is listener support that is keeping the podcast alive. If only a handful of the people who listen to each episode donated one or two dollars, the podcast would be fully funded. If you can't afford to donate or become a member on Patreon, one of the best ways that you can support the show is by reviewing and sharing online or by word of mouth. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding OK. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Keep on loving, keep on fighting, and hold on, and hold on.